Once again, Merry Christmas, everyone. I would love for you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for the fourth week in a row. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have Bibles under the seats in front of you, and you can take one of those Bibles home as a gift from us if you do not have a Bible that's a little bit easier for you to read. Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Amen? Amen. Amen. During this Christmas season, we have been looking at Isaiah's wonderful prophecy here of a child that's to be born, a son that's to be given, and now we come to the fourth and final and kind of that climatic name given to this child, Prince of Peace. We live in a world that is everything but peaceful. And in that, that name, Prince of Peace, is a wonderful name, isn't it? The world is not just longing for peace, but is also really kind of worried about whether it will ever achieve real peace. And here in this scripture and throughout all of scripture, we see the task, the twofold task of the prince of peace. There is, see, there's, there's one who never over promises. Do you know people like that? You know, tomorrow morning they may have overpromised on some things. Jesus never overpromises. Jesus never underdelivers. He always makes good on precisely what he says and what he promises. He Jesus is this child described in this passage, the one Isaiah prophesied about so many centuries ago, the one whom Christians worship. Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the eternal father, the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. He and this is what's so frustrating to, I think, everyone that's a Christian in this world. This is the frustrating thing for all of us who are Christians. He is the one who actually brings peace into the world, into our lives. He is God's shalom. This word shalom is so wonderful. It has all of these connotations of peace in English, but it includes a lot more than just shalom, peace be with you. It means not some weird psychological ease, but it's a holistic sense of fulfillment, well-being, flourishing. It's a comprehensive peace. It's what the Old Testament prophets were looking for. Isaiah was envisioning this prince of shalom. 
One writer said it this way, the Old Testament prophets dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out. Rough places made plain, foolish would be made wise, and wise humble. The prophets dreamed of a time when the death weeping would cease. People could go to sleep with weapons on their laps. But weapons that aren't needed. People would work in peace. Work to a fruitful effect. Lambs would lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. All nature, all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean towards God, and delight in God. Amen? That is shalom. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from the valleys and the seas. Women in the streets and men on the ships would shout in joy. The webbing together that this writer says of God, humans, all of creation and fulfillment and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. From such a little word comes so much and comes something that is completely void in our world. The kind of peace that the Prince of Peace alone can bring. And he achieves it in two ways. First of all, he achieves it by literally ending war. As you read in Isaiah 9, right before verse 6, in 4 and 5, he says he's going to break the sword, the rod of the oppressor. Every blood-soaked garment in war is going to be rolled up and burnt for fuel. Secondly, he's going to extend this well-being, this safety, the security of human flourishing to everyone of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will rule with justice. He will rule with righteousness. Everyone under his reign will flourish. Are you looking forward to that? See, this is the twofold task of the Prince of Peace. He will put the world right. A process of peacemaking that Christians know began at Christ's birth, but won't be completed until Christ returns. You see, there's this hostility there, isn't there, in this world today? This hostility, not just between man and man, but hostility between God and man. Do you know where the Prince of Peace must begin if he's going to achieve peace? Do you know what is at the root of everything lacking of peace or the core of violence and hostility in the world? Do you know the one thing no politician can do about this because it only can be dealt with by the Prince of Peace? 
And that one thing that absolutely no one can do anything with is our own hostility towards God. In our sin, we're at war with God. Because of our sin, we are combatants in a war with God. That is the condition that we have apart from the saving grace found in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. We are, the Bible says, enemies of God. The Bible says that in our sin, we're hostile towards God. Paul explains this this way, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's found in Romans 8, verse 7. And whether you are fully aware of it or not, and often many are not, there is a deep-seated in God in every fallen human being. Because of that, we routinely suppress the truth about God. People don't want to be confronted with the reality of His presence. And so we have these subtle and sophisticated defense mechanisms where, as it says in Romans 1.20, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And you can actually find that in a lot of the secular celebration of Christmas. The suppression of truth in unrighteousness. Instead of focusing on the birth of the Savior, we focus on stuff. What is that doing? It's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's it's kind of like this as well. I don't know if any of you have ever had this happen. By the way, if you're visiting, that's my lead into a sarcastic statement. But I think most of us have had a falling out with someone, maybe family, friends, whatever. And whenever that person is near, you have a hard time acknowledging their presence. Have you ever been there, done that? You're like... We are in a hostile situation towards Him. But, but check this out, everyone. The Bible also says that in our sin, and this is the thing that's interesting, God is actually actively opposed to us as well. God is angry with us because of sin. We have a very hard time with that truth, our, our culture does. Our culture will say things like, you know, well, God is, if God's a God of love, why is there all of this other stuff going on? Well, our view of God often is unbalanced and unbiblical. We lose sight of the fact that God is a four-letter word that's a good word. Holy. God is holy actually brings peace to say that god is holy and because he is holy he is forever opposed to evil 
to sin. And that's all over the place in our world, and it's all over the place in our own lives and our fallen condition. Romans 5, verses 8 through 10, is an interesting passage because this passage in Romans is celebrating God's amazing love and reconciling sinners to himself. But in this celebration, in this sermon that Paul's giving, in this celebration of God's amazing love, in this sobering description, though, is a situational thing that happens with us, apart from being with God. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 5. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while yet we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him, through Christ. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. There are some key phrases in there that talks about our condition outside of Christ, outside of those last few great words in verse 10. Our condition outside of that, in verse 8, we're sinners. In verse 9, the wrath of God is setting on us. And that is why the cross of Christ is not optional in our celebration of Christmas. It's necessary. If we're going to enjoy God, it is only going to come one way. It's not going to come by God ignoring our sin or making light of it, overlooking the things, playing nice. Ah, it's just they're sinners by nature. The only way peace with God will come is by God dealing head-on with it. And He dealt head-on with it with Jesus. And that is what He has done. The gift of the Son, the one whom is rightly called the Prince of Peace. And before He was the Prince of Peace, He was first for us, and because of our sin, the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, probably the most powerful and moving prophecies about Christ really to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. And that's why the first generation of of Christians loved this passage and turned to it again and again to make sense of who Jesus was and what he had done. If you've noticed around here, Daniel and I land on Isaiah 53 quite a bit. It says these words, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him. Did you catch that? The chastening for our peace fell upon him. And by his wounds, what are we? We are healed. God put an end to the hostility between himself and sinful humanity. People did not. See, that's where our world gets it wrong all the time. We try to figure out this peace thing without God. Is it possible to have peace without Christ? The answer is no. He is the Prince of Peace. He made peace through the blood of his cross, peace between God and man by dealing with sin. The question that all of us need to answer in our lives is a simple one. Do you know that peace? Have you embraced Christ by faith to find it? You see, that's the peace we now enjoy through Christ. It's worth pointing out that the peace we enjoy through Christ is not, certainly not, circumstantial. That is, it's not the case that the Prince of Peace will fix everything in your life presently. There almost certainly will be continued difficulties, hardships that we all face, conflict that we all endure, broken relationships we have to navigate and learn to live with. The Prince of Peace doesn't promise perfection in this life. What he does promise promised them just that kind of peace, even in a world that was going to butcher them. He knew the world was going to be hostile to Christians. In what's called his farewell discourse, his last teaching before he was betrayed and crucified for us, Jesus leveled all of this on his disciples. He told them plainly that the world wouldn't take kindly to the followers of the Prince of Peace. The King, Jesus, who was going to disrupt the powers and the patterns of this world, John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. He says it very candidly. He also tells them in verse 33, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. Isn't that interesting? You're going to have tribulation, but I say this to you so that you can have peace. Earlier on, in John 14, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
And when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, you may know his first words to them. John 20, 19. On that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were in fear of the Jewish people, Jesus, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, here's the first four words that Jesus said after the resurrection, peace be with you. Who was with them? The prince of peace. You see, that's what the Prince of Peace offers his followers. It isn't a pie-in-the-sky peace. It is a kind of peace that actually steadies the storms. It's the kind of peace that sustains, the kind of peace that you long to have when the world is teetering out of control. You can stand tall and say, I follow the Prince of Peace. And no matter what the world throws at me or throws at each other, I have peace in my heart because I have been reconciled to God through Christ and you can do nothing to destroy that peace. You see, when the circumstances in your life turn for the worse, you will know peace in Christ. The kind of peace that Christians have always known in hard times. The kind of peace they have celebrated in their lives. The kind of peace that Christians have sung about for 2,000 years in songs. It's the kind of peace celebrated in a powerfully moving hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Peace, only available through the Prince of Peace. And you know where that peace is supposed to be embodied in this world right now? His church. Who is the head of the church? Christ. Christ is the king, the head of the church. He is the prince of peace. And Paul celebrates this horizontal peace that we're supposed to have in churches all around the world that are living and following him in Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace who made both groups one, so he's talking about the different groups that, are out, that were outside of the church, now made one, broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the hostility. And he came and he preached the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. He's talking about the Jewish having the access to peace in Christ. 
So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Yes, Christians are the ones that to, are to embody this peace and our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. The church is a place of peace, not of conflict, conflict, not of petty church politics, broken relationships, rivalries, infighting, all of that junk. And for those of you who are visiting with us today, I would like to tell you in 30 years of ministry, full-time ministry, I find in West Hills Church right now, peace. It's a fun place to be. I really believe we're straight. We're not perfect. We're close, but no. but we're striving to be one body, as Paul talks about, living under the authority of Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. And then we're supposed to walk in a certain way, then Paul says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in what? In the bond of peace. We embody peace in our relationships. We proclaim peace to the world. God has given the church to the world. Do you know that? The ministry of reconciliation belongs to the church In Christ, God has reconciled the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, do you catch that? Us, the message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see the famous English poet John Milton, who died just a few years ago, like 400 years ago. He penned many powerful poems, but one of which was a Christmas poem entitled On the Morning of Christ's Nativity, and it was written in 1629. And it speaks of how God the Father in His infinite grace towards us graced us with perpetual peace through the gift of His Son, whom we know as the Prince of Peace. And the poem goes like this. This is the month and this is the happy morn wherein the Son of Heaven's eternal King of wedded maid and virgin mother born, our great redemption from above did bring, for so the holy sages once did sing, that he our deadly forfeit should release, and with his father work us a perpetual peace. Our Prince of Peace, prophesied long ago, promises us 
perpetual peace. It's inaugurated now in this life when we find peace that He offers to us through His death and resurrection. It is a peace that will be fully consummated one day when He returns, when the trumpet sounds and the host of heaven in His train is there to finish what He's begun and to usher us into a never-ending era of peace, joy, and life with one another and with God forever and ever. And until that day arrives, may the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Because the Son of God, this Jesus that we celebrate His birth right now, He is the wonderful Counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the Eternal Father. And He is the Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Lord, may we find peace through Christ.